Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. Blue Wire. The Philadelphia 76ers select Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Here comes Simmons between the legs. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the New Slant Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Newback. This week, our podcast being brought to you by our friends at Bet Online and Deal Dash. If I could just get through the opening sentence of the podcast without bungling it. So, thank you to Deal Dash and Bet Online for keeping our lights on. With me, as he is every week now, with the experience of having watched. The Sixers do the same stupid shit they do at home and on the road in Orlando. My buddy, my pal, Seamus Clancy. Seamus, how are you? I'm empathetic to your issue that words are hard to say. Listen, you know, you would think we don't host a podcast, but alas, it is part of our weekly routine and I'm still trying to figure out how to do this thing. So not exactly a good job by me to open it up. And not exactly a good job by the Sixers to open it up in Orlando. So I guess we share that in common. Uh, So Seamus and I are recording this Wednesday night around, we'll say about 7.30 or so. The Sixers a little while ago finished up their game against the Washington Wizards. They moved to 2-1 and in their first three games. I think people are... About as disappointed with their performance so far as you could be with a team that won two thirds of their games. This is the worst two and one of all fucking time. <laughs> um, yeah, I just so let's start with the positive. Sure. I think the I think the one overwhelming positive so far is that Joel Embiid looks like. He's back at the not just like all-star level. This is like MVP caliber play. Now, obviously, you take it with a grain of salt to some degree because of the opponents they've played who have been undermanned in the front court and so on and so forth. But even independent of that, I think this is the best that Joel has looked in a while. And, you know, after being sold this idea that, you know, he was in the gym six days a week, he's in shape, he's doing this, he's doing that. It's refreshing for all that to be said and for Joel to come out and actually deliver on that. Well, if he could play against Miles Turner and one of the Zeller brothers uh, every game for his career, he'd have a handful of MVP trophies in his cabinet. <laughs> uh, he owns he owns Miles Turner. Uh, I would love to at some point play them in a playoff series and just watch his ass get played off the court as it did this past Saturday. But after Joe, that's when all the issues start to fall, right? Yeah, like, listen, it's great that Joel has put up a bunch of double-doubles. and His passing's you know, great. I, it, it, the, the passing is the biggest development. Specifically uh, going... specifically against the Magic, I guess, if you're listening to this on Thursday, uh, last night or Wednesday as we're talking, uh, it was beautiful. 
Then they were sending they were sending double teams like crazy, especially late when Simmons wasn't there. Wait, every did you time. just called the Wizards the Magic? That's very funny. Yeah, they're the same thing. I guess no why because <laughs> no why because they're playing in Orlando. Something it's a road game in Orlando. Hey, I listen. We're both off to a flying start in this podcast, Seamus. I get it. We're, we're turning into the old guys who hang on in the broadcast booth too long and start, you know, misremembering players or they're calling guys by names that were guys that they announced when they were in their forties. I guess. Yeah, getting ready for uh, prime time national TV. Mark Fultz on Friday in the Magic. <laughs> but to your point, so I think. Yes, everyone. I I don't want to say everyone. There have been a couple guys who I think have been good in Orlando who we'll get to at some point. But I think beyond just the box score numbers, Joel's passing out of double teams has been as good or better than it has ever been. Why that is, is hard to say. I, I do wonder if some of it is they're playing in empty gyms and it's a little easier to concentrate and hear call outs from teammates and so on and so forth to my eye. And I don't know if you'll agree with this Seamus. I think he's just been better at controlling his dribble and not necessarily, that doesn't mean that I think he has turned into a better ball handler, but I think he has felt the pressure more or in some instances, he's just choosing not to dribble at all. And, you know, really looking to analyze the defense before, he starts backing guys down and that's led to when the early doubles come then he's just firing these snap passes to the corner that create open looks or at least like the chain reaction that creates an open look so you know physically he looks great I think he's dominated the boards when he's wanted to but the the passing has been a pleasant surprise and I think if they're going to go anywhere and they want to build a real contender around Joel Embiid and a a big post-up player, that's the next step that he's always needed to take. I think the dribbling component is key as well, and I like that you pointed out that. But thinking now on the past three games, the only moment I really think of him as having one of his typical snafus where he loses the ball and, you know, hits the defender and falls on his ass and is slow to get up uh, was against this Wizards team on Wednesday. And that was really just the one moment in the last three games for him. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Given that he's looked better as a passer and he's looked as you know as good as he has in you know a year and a half since you know his peak in 2019 last season or you know the second half of the 2018 season even. Yeah, he's almost had like the reverse path that a lot of young big men have, where normally defensively is where those guys really struggle right away where they're trying to overcompensate they're chasing every potential block and they're always in foul trouble well he was he's on some level like a defensive savant some of that because physically he's just so gifted and so big that it's going to be big and play basketball it's going to be that way yeah it's always helpful but Another part of that is like, you know, he translated skills from other sports. He's a big volleyball player and timing and instincts from that translated to basketball. And he so he's always been good on defense and he dealt with foul trouble at times and actually fouled out tonight. As I say this, that was bullshit. Yeah, a couple of those calls were especially pretty iffy. The one he fouled out on was like there was like 10 seconds left and was nonsense. Yeah, that was but ultimately didn't really matter. But on, on the offensive end is where it's been a work in progress and where I, I think you see him or have seen him in the past 
trying to force things. He, he wants to be the hero. He wants to be the guy that's that's doing all the scoring. And I think he is the maybe finally realized that if he just lets it come to him and he uses the attention that's turned his way to make his teammates better, that's ultimately what's going to most help the team. And, and in spite of all this, he's still putting up. Like he, I think he had see the 29 or 30 points against Washington. He obviously had the 41-21 game against Indiana where Wasted. they just couldn't do fucking anything with him. Yeah, and that's a whole different thing. It, it's unbelievable that Joel could put up a 40-20 game and they would still lose, but... You know, this is the team that if they're going to waste a performance like that, could somehow manage to do it. Yeah, that seconds me. That was his second 40-20 game of his career. Not even in that infamous late night ESPN game in the fall of 2017 that he have 40 and 20. I think actually I wrote about it in the newsletter, which why aren't you subscribing to that? Is that the last time he had 40 and 20 was in 2018 against the Pacers too. Because Miles Turner can't do shit against him. Yeah, it's really amusing. Because Turner, I think, generally is considered a pretty good defender. Not this year. Big men. But in the years, in the, you know, say in 2018, 2019, he was getting buzz for Defensive Player of the Year. And I thought rightfully so on the days he didn't play the Sixers. Not this year. I I have a similar, I have a level of cognitive dissonance where I watch miles turner play against other teams and i feel the same way about anthony davis and anthony davis is a much better player just to be clear but i watch those guys play against other teams and you know they do the things that they're good at and they look like anthony davis for example looks like an mvp type guy and then he gets up against joel and it's like if people only watch the sixers and only see these guys play against joel it's like Man, you would think that guy fucking sucks. He doesn't do anything against him. So yeah, the Sixers individual matchups can slant our uh, perspective on things. It's like uh, Doug Peterson. If you look at it as a whole, he might not be the best coach in the NFL. But when you look up his matchups against Sean McVay or Bill Belichick, maybe he is the best coach in the NFL. But I'm joking there. But Joe is obviously the best big man in the league. He, you know. Doesn't get as much buzz as Anthony Davis. He has had for him specifically, not for just a big man overall, but for the caliber of player we know him to be and believe that he can be going forward. I think it was a down season for him in 2020. It wasn't as good as he was in 2019. And I don't even think it's as good as he was in 2018. I think it's he's better than his rookie season. He's playing more. He's healthier. But it's been a little bit disappointing for me. And to see him after this... You know, time off, he spent, he played, what, 12 minutes in one of the scrimmage games out of the three of them, sat two of them, sat on his ass for five months. And I'm not saying that in terms of a laziness for him. All the players were sitting on their ass for five months. And then he comes out and you would think that he needs time to get his legs under him, which has been a huge problem from him coming off of injury throughout his career. And to come right in and have a 40-20 game and then follow it up with two nearly 30-point double-doubles, he's killing it. Yeah, and I think there was some feeling of, oh, here we go again with Joel when he only plays that first half. I was there. They, yeah, like I, I think that's a totally natural reaction to have at this point. And so then you wonder, all right, they have this game against Indiana. They're rolling out this new lineup. We haven't really seen much of Joel. What the hell is he going to offer? And then he comes out, and he's been the best player on the floor 
I I guess you could argue that TJ Warren was in the first game because he scored more points, but I I think he didn't do much other than that. So I think he's been the best player on the floor all three games so far, and, and that's that's what has to happen if they want to even go far in the playoffs, let alone win a title. Joel was definitely the best player on the floor because even if a TJ Warren didn't play, another player on the Pacers would have stepped up and had a 40-point game just because they were playing the Sixers. So Joe still stands <laughs> as the best player in the game. So while we're on the subject of TJ Warren's scoring explosion, I guess we'll roll in the biggest disappointment of the bubble play so far and the biggest potential threat to them being a, a playoff factor is Ben Simmons. And so we are recording this prior to learning much about what's wrong with Ben. I, I was told by the team earlier tonight that he has a left knee injury and that he was not going to finish Wednesday's game against the Wizards. Beyond that, we don't have a lot of information. We don't know how serious it is. So obviously... You could wake up tomorrow, hear this, and we can't re-record it after it's out. So bear I'm with not us. Gonna, I'm not going to be freaking out or anything, but I want us to be cautious in the event that this is, is this is serious. The way Woj described that he said he wasn't feeling pain, there wasn't any swelling. I'm not exactly sure what Brett Brown said to you and Kyle, and we can definitely get into that. But NBC Sports on the, te- on the telecast did show Ben limping around in street clothes towards the end of the game uh, in the back of not on the court, but in the locker room, outside the locker room area. Yeah, he didn't look good. It didn't. It, it didn't look positive. But I, I guess the the fact that he didn't have swelling or any potential, any like danger signs. Sure, yet, we'll say uh, those are positive. So we can't get too much into the injury stuff. Obviously, I'll try to. Brett didn't have anything additional to provide us after the game either. I think he's sort of. A level slightly above where we are right sure. now. But they're... So let's just... We'll talk about his defense, which... And I don't want to say just Ben. I think there have been a lot of guys, him and Josh Richardson specifically, that have just been atrocious defensively since they started these real games. And I think... The, <clears throat> excuse me. I think the reason it's so surprising to me is that Ben and Josh both... We're sort of leading the way. I think we talked about this on last week's podcast. I thought they led the way to a degree on the defensive end during the scrimmages, and they're trying to set a tone. They come out looking you know, ready to go. And to look as flat as they have, and you know, it's sometimes just lackadaisical not caring about the play in front of them. That has been a little shocking to me, especially with Ben having had the season that he's had on defense I think he's been the tone setter and filling in for Embiid in that regard because as you said Seamus which I agree with Joel has taken a step back in a lot of ways this year including as a the defensive linchpin although the numbers still suggest that he's super impactful anyway and I I just don't get it I it it seemed like we were had he was going to use the the scrimmage games as a platform and just pick up where he left off. And I haven't seen any of that at all. I, I think the numbers, like people posted them on Twitter, obviously, but the NBA's matchup data, I think TJ Warren shot like 90% against Ben. It was, not, last it, Saturday it was nine for 10 and like, I think like six or seven 
on the the same amount of attempts from three, but it was definitely nine for ten from the field. Yeah, and I think Demar Derozan had been like five for eight against him on Monday night. Didn't play well against him either. Rich Hoffman from the Athletic tweeted that I remember that uh, on Ben specifically, Warren had twenty four points, and it was on nine of ten. I'm not sure how many threes though. Yeah, so just to be specific, those are look; those guys are good scorers, and they're actually good scorers in usually in very similar ways. Warren is a much more willing and capable three point shooter, but they both like to make their they both like to make their living inside the paint or the inside the arc, I should say. And it just seemed like Ben totally lost the plot against Warren specifically. But it did some of the same shit against Throzen where they had Richardson and Ben checking DeRozan out to the three-point line, like playing them up tight out to almost half court. And it's like, dude, you're just asking for trouble doing stuff like that. Now, some of it you might have to pin on the coaching staff and how they wanted them to play. But I just saw a lot of uncharacteristic mental mistakes from Ben specifically helping off of the hot shooter. Like on the final possession of the game where Warren is at 50 points at that point and Aaron Holiday does, it might have a step on Matisse Thibel, but doesn't have a clear path to the rim by any stretch. There's no reason Ben should be helping off a TJ Warren to deal with that. That's something where you got to trust your teammates, the defense behind you. And that has stood out to me a lot that Ben is starting to get into back into the bad habits he used to have where he's gambling at times that that don't really make any sense. And, you know, there's a fine line between playing aggressive defense and letting teams just kind of do what they want. And then you're at the mercy of their jump shots. I don't think Ben has found the happy medium at all. And I, so, you know, I don't know if any of this has been impacted by maybe this knee issue. There was something underlying there. It's hard for me to say we weren't told of absolutely anything before uh, Wednesday's game against Washington, but yeah, he's got to he has to be much better and the group collectively has to be much better. Yeah, it felt like an, you know, uncharacteristic lack of basketball IQ for Ben in those late game situations defensively. I mean, for all the words maybe talk about offensively, his shooting at the rim on Wednesday against Washington was uh, mind-boggling. I'm fuming, like, screaming, like, what the fuck type stuff. He was 2 for 10, and I'm not going to lie. It had to be seven of those attempts uh, at least were at the rim. He had that one three-point attempt that he— We didn't even—Ben took a three-pointer, and we haven't even talked about it. How far are we into this podcast? Yeah, well, that's that kind of shows. Eighteen you. minutes, and we haven't talked about him taking a three. Where where are our heads at? We are through the looking glass, Seamus. But yeah, it just maybe the intensity isn't there right now. Um, I don't know if that's because of the layoff. It seemed like it was kind of there for those scrimmage games. Maybe this is as you alluded to. This could have been a knee issue that was lingering. It's not something that just came about on Wednesday. Maybe it was something that was already there, and only you know the injury got heightened uh, against in the game against Washington. So we don't know that. We don't know all the facts. But it's believable that for a player who's 
been a clear-cut first-team all-defensive choice this season. Ben Simmons in these three games has not looked like that Ben Simmons, and an injury gives more credence to why he hasn't looked that way and why we've seen guys like TJ Warren, DeMar DeRozan, uh, Rudy Gay, and then even briefly Ish Smith and Jerome Robinson go off. Yeah, and I'll say this. I do think Ben's issues that he had before he came out of the game Wednesday through the first three games, I think most of them are very easily correctable, right? Like, I I don't think when... I don't think there's long-term issues here for the playoffs or anything. Yeah, like, I I think, especially in the game against Washington, I, I understand not necessarily being... 150% 150% boss of the wall in that game. But I, I just think it's a little surprising given that we have already seen him in scrimmage games, no less, that meant even less than these games do, play harder than this and perform better than this. So I'm hoping that gets fixed. I, I think, honestly, the bigger concern would be Richardson has not looked good. And, and oh his, his issues have been... His it it didn't start during was, the bubble. <laughs> they've just been like these stupid mental mistakes and his are on both ends i know ben had a bad he has not been good on offense but i think he's mostly kept his head there josh has these stretches where i am just bewildered by whatever he thinks he's doing on that end like i brought up the DeRozan example a lot of the article i wrote the other day about his defense centered around the idea like look dude if you're guarding DeMar DeRozan, you should know. Like, if the people at home know that guy doesn't shoot threes and doesn't make threes, I know he made the first one since fucking January on Monday night, you don't pick him up out the half court because if he gets a step on you, you're not getting that step back. Like, for all DeRozan's weaknesses and his stylistic issues as a player – he has a great first step, and he's a super athlete. So if he turns the corner on you, good luck recovering on him. So there's been a lot of stuff like that where I just think, Josh, I can't imagine that Philadelphia's coaching staff is sitting down with him and saying, Josh, you know what we need you to do tonight? Play defense on DeMar DeRozan out to like 50 feet. That's just – there's no way. So I don't know what his deal is. Maybe that's – it's just – getting back out there and getting the rust off a little bit but i'd be more willing to say that if it was more of a physical thing rather than just these brain dead stretches where i don't i don't it looks like he's never played basketball before or at least never seen a scouting report did you say monday was the first time he made a three since january demar derozan had not made a three-point shot since i believe it was january 10th i thought you meant josh richardson and i was like Oh There's, no no! And no, I'm, no, I like no. to, I tuned out everything you said after that, and I had this confused like it was a memeable face. I'm just like looking around my little you know spare bedroom office. I was like. There's, there's no friggin' way that that's right, right? Like, and I'm just like, no. I, I, I think, I think he sucks, <laughs> but he doesn't suck that bad. No, uh, listen, I, I think Josh has been. You know, I don't want to say he's been a disappointment because he hasn't even been healthy enough to be a disappointment for most no, of this year. It's been hard to get. It's been know. hard to get a. Uh, well, look, when a guy's in and out of the lineup constantly, and he's thrown into a million different roles because the team they can't sucks. figure out what the fuck to <laughs> do with sucks. this roster. I don't put that all on him, but I, I do put some of the, 
you know, basic defensive principle mistakes on him. Uh, before we start complaining too much, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors, and then we'll be back to get into the head coach, which I'm sure many of you are excited for. So sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. You know, we've got the Phillies are out there with their crappy bullpen again. The Sixers are making you look like an idiot if you ever bet on them as a big favorite. And there's no Fade better the place to start wagering. There's no better place to start wagering on those two awful Philadelphia teams than with our exclusive partners at Bet Online. You can check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on available 24-7. And with the return of sports, BetOnline sat down with former pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Ury. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans in a series they're calling Fandemic. So visit BetOnline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. I'm really struggling with my my words today. That's promo code blue wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Get this guy a beer. Is this the time <laughs> when we talk about the 2001 Titan since we mentioned Eddie George? But first, Deal Dash. Have you ever heard of DealDash.com? If you've listened to this podcast before, you certainly have. It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you'd never expect, like you would really never expect, at a price you'd never believe. They have over a 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. I really want a car. I really want a Ford Bronco. I don't have a car right now. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that the auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item is yours. Sounds pretty easy. Sounds like you're getting free money somehow. If you go ahead and buy now, Deal Dash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign up. 100, Will Chamberlain style, on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use their offer code SLANT or DealDash.fm backslash slant. That's D-E-A-L-D. A-S-H dot F-M backslash slant. Yeah, Seamus, I probably could use a beer. I've been, I'm have i a little parched in general. I got my water over here. And I played... I actually... This is you know really going on a tangent here. I played tennis this afternoon before the Sixers started. You know, I wanted to get outside and get a little sweat in. And don't think I hydrated enough, so... Guys are gonna have to bear with me butchering the English language a little bit more than I usually do on uh, on this episode of the podcast. You big tennis guy? Uh, not a huge tennis guy, but I've been playing a little bit more recently. I got a new racket. I'm, Have you played uh, like growing up and everything? No, it's like I th- the extent of my playing generally is playing on vacation with my dad like if we're at the beach and find a random random court somewhere and you know just get get some volleys in yeah you can always like you just walk by like a local wherever the local school is if you're in ocean city or my family used to 
vacation in like South Carolina and um yeah I would probably be there now if not for this whole having a job thing which I listen I value very much and um but yeah we would always play down there and so it I like it more than you know like it's a lifetime sport and it's not golf and golf just irritates the shit out of me I was actually decent at golf when I played a few times when I was younger but it just bores the shit out of me so tennis is the game that I'll probably play as I get older and need to save my legs from we'll call it real physical activity I don't know I think you have to be in pretty good friggin shape to play tennis but I guess maybe not in a casual professionally yeah to play seriously you have to be in unbelievable shape but if you're just if you go with people that you know you're just looking to knock it around and get a sweat in it's a lot easier in that way so i guess this is this will end the official tennis segment of the podcast i i, I guess the the next thing we got to get to seamus especially because i i saw twitter on monday night even after a loss and certainly after or even after a win and certainly after the loss saturday night uh, the people don't appear to be too happy with Brett Brown right now. And, you know, I think this is probably the point where I am most understanding and sympathetic to the anger because not that he wasn't like, look, I don't think Brett helped the situation this year. I, I think he was dealt a bad hand and still did nothing with it. Didn't really try to do much with it outside of when he finally bumped Horford from the lineup but I thought given the long layoff that you know this is an opportunity for everybody to start fresh they can all the the front office the analytics people the coaching staff the players can all sit down look at this and take an honest hard look at okay what can we do better and how can I personally individually be better and you know they get down there and it's just a lot of the same shit the people have criticized Brett for over and over again. I think the big thing in the first two games was why is Howell Neto playing so much? Why is he playing over Alec Burks, who my guy. has been better, my guy. Who has been better down there, and people just you know assumed would get those minutes because they traded for him. Doing things like Ben Simmons was in foul trouble against San Antonio, and with five fouls, he inexplicably decides the the Ben at the five lineup that he normally doesn't really play all that often well now that's the time to use it and that's the absolute worst time to play Ben Simmons at center when he's scared to pick up fouls and you know I just I don't see much different like I don't see anything different about this team structurally with the sets they're running I I know they've run more stuff through the elbows but there are still these long periods where regardless of who the ball handler is and what the personnel looks like, it's just someone stops like 15% of the way into a pick and roll set, picks up their dribble, and then they have to reset the offense. And it's just a mess. I And as much as I – like, look, I there are two separate ideas, right? I like Brett the person. I think you, most people who follow this team would say the same way, and they don't have an actual like 
personal relationship with that person. But that is completely independent of the fact that not only is he not helping them in the bubble, in, in some ways he's made the games worse through the first three games. So he has been, he's deserved any criticism that he's gotten in my mind. And I, I all I have to ask you, Seamus, is how frustrated are you with Brett at this point? It's true that he's been dealt a bad hand. That's unmistakable. But it's not mutually exclusive that he's been dealt a bad hand and he's also done a poor job this season with the team and maybe hasn't done a great job in the years previous to that. He's not maximizing the talent on this roster. Players come here and they're worse than they played in their previous stop. Players leave here and they're better than they were playing when they were in Philadelphia. What is the common denominator there? It's not all in the... I mean, obviously, I hate this front office since the beginning of the Calandrill ever. They've, you know, blew up every chance they had to create a true, true, you know, multi-year finals contender, which has already seemed to go out the window before it even started. But at a certain point, the entire part point of the process was to escape mediocrity, to not settle for mediocrity, to not just settle for okay, to try to have something great. At what point do we stop settling for mediocrity at the head coaching position and look for someone to maximize the talents of their two franchise players and allow role players to carve out specific roles that work for them around those two players? Because it hasn't happened with Brett Brown. This is his seventh season in Philadelphia. Obviously, you can throw the first four years out the friggin' window because it's not even real basketball. But right now... I don't understand how you could go back next season with this guy and, you know, increasingly look like to me a team that could be on the brink of a first round loss. Uh, given the hype this season started with, obviously their uh, complete outlier season in terms of schedule, stability, everything going on in the world. And I don't want to throw Brett out in his ass in the middle of a pandemic. For all, from all accounts, seems like a great guy. His post-game interviews after wins delightful his accent even more so at this point having watched him for years and looking at the way other teams make adjustments mid-game something that he seems oblivious to for doing to his own team i don't want him to be the coach of the philadelphia 76ers anymore yeah and i i totally understand that i i think he has like he's gotten enough chances to prove this is what I can do and this is how I'm willing to adjust and so on and so forth. And, you know, he kind of just is what he is. And he does have strengths as a coach. I think the interpersonal stuff is important. I think that they have gotten more out of some guys that they've developed internally than they probably had any right to expect. Like, I think a perfect example is, you know, people get on Brett for – having not played him up until the back half of this year. But, like, Shake Milton was a guy that was taken with one of the final picks of the second round. The idea that it was, like, a slam dunk thing to have him in the rotation, let alone as a starter, is bullshit. And the fact that they the, – the organization, and not just Brett, obviously, but this coaching staff and the Delaware coaching staff – was able to develop him to the point that, you know, Shake has looked like a credible starter, at least a credible rotation player in the time that he spent outside of 
the disaster game he had against Indiana. And that's good. Those are things that that stuff matters to sustaining a winning program. But in terms of like, you know, there's the old idea, right, that there are coaches that are good for the early stages of rebuild and the ascent. And at some point, you probably need the guy who's going to be like the title winning coach and the guy who who is going to make the X's and O's adjustments, who's going to demand more of his star players will challenge them maybe more than than Brett has or or at least more successfully than Brett has. I don't always buy into that, but I think like if you just look at the landscape here and see what their problems are, like we should not be if you look at the Toronto Raptors who won the title last year, who have every reason to sit back in these games and say well, fuck it. We don't really care about these games. We don't have to play that hard. We can we can take defensive possessions off. But that team plays hard as shit, and they're they are bought in. They their compete level is high all the time. And then you see the Sixers play the Wizards, and five guys are standing on the floor flat-footed and not going after rebounds and the the Wizards are able to hang in the game because of shit like that because they're just giving up these possessions that they don't need to that's something like that the culture there is fucked up and that's something that that has to change I don't know that a new coach is going to be the difference there but we're long past the point that that stuff is never acceptable. But for a team that talks all this shit about, you know, they believe they have one of the best rosters in the league. They think they're a playoff team. The playoff teams build habits long before they actually get to the playoffs. And what we see now is the same stuff that you and I and everybody else has seen all season, Seamus. So I, I just think it, it ends up reflecting poorly on Brett, regardless of whether it's all his fault or not. And so, uh, look, I sympathize with all the frustration with him. I would love to have seen him host the Larry OB trophy, but that dream is gone. Unless they're like, they would need to go on a miracle run, which. You know, this team will all bury them and say they're fucked and they'll do it just because that's they just do everything to piss people off. But like, I, I hate this team, but is it like entirely, entirely out of the realm of possibility that Joel goes on a 2011 Dirk run? No, but I mean, they had Rick Carlisle who outcoached the best player of all time in the finals. So that's a different story, I guess. Yeah, the funny thing is I do think they match up well with a lot of the West contenders, but unfortunately the East has a couple teams that I think will give them problems. But bottom line here, Brett's had a good run here, despite what people would say. Like, There are not a lot of coaches that would have done better with the, the wholesale correct. situation correct. here. Correct. And that is something that I think needs to be kept in perspective. But you know, look, he is accountable for all the issues with this team, just like the players are. And none of this is to say that the players get a pass or that the front office gets a pass. Oh, like, they certainly don't. I, I think there is a good case that this whole thing needs a, a, like a real hard reset in the summer. And I know that that would not be palatable to a lot of people. 
turning over the roster again around Joel and Ben, turning over the front office and, and figuring out another GM and another front office after the upheaval that they've gone through since being here. But, you know, like there's they it, they still seem so far from having the right mix of guys around these two. And, and maybe these two are doomed to fail together and maybe they do need to end up trading one one day. But I don't think that they've even come close to building the ideal mix around them. The closest they got was getting somebody, regardless of what you think about Jimmy Butler's personality, getting that like perimeter alpha dog that can make up for some of Ben's deficiencies and someone who can make Joel better with the ball in his hands. That is what this team has needed. I They tr- have tried to find that in, in different ways. Remember they traded they up went, for a guy that they thought was going to do that and that blew up in everyone's faces? Right. And, and look, that's the most baffling thing about this team is that, or about the front office is that they seem to know, at least from my view, and you can have, I don't know what your opinion on this, Seamus, that is the right instinct. You want a guy who can be like the perimeter person, who's a scorer, who is also a setup guy, that who also can be successful without the ball in their hands. I get conceptually the Markel Fultz thing. I get the Jimmy Butler thing. They're, obviously, both those had downsides for different reasons. But so then how do you go all in on this fucking like the Al Horford? And I don't even want to disparage Tobias Harris because I think he's probably been their second best player through the first three games yes. of the restart. But it's just you're are you just throwing out the division that you had before because I don't think it got worse if anything the success they had with Butler and how close they were to beating Toronto validates that whole idea so long and short of it is Brett Brown has been a contributor to the problem I think he's the most logical person to move on from this summer uh, save for some kind of miracle run but I, I also think that you know, the more we see of this group and the more the issues stay the same, the more that you have to look at just a, another big reset of the org, save for uh, the pillars of the organization. And who are the pillars? Just Ben and Joe, do you? Uh, to me, it's just Ben and Joe. And obviously, yeah, same. Like, I, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Obviously, like the guys who are useful young cheap contributors there's no reason to like you're gonna have to use those guys to get off val's fucking contract right like shake matisse even like furcon to a lesser extent i don't they don't need to keep him or anything but those are guys that at least have roles and you're not like actively needing to move them to get better now you might have to move them as you say seamus to to clear the deck and figure out these figure out bigger moves but that's just, I guess, how I see it from at this point. Want to finish up? Um, oh, so what do you? How do you assess Tobias so far? Because to my eye, I think he's been. Now this is damning with faint praise, certainly, but I I think he's been their second best player behind Joel the first three games, and I think he has shown a level of tenacity and aggressiveness at times that he has lacked in the past that I think is really encouraging. 
he just seems and feels consistent. Like he's this steady presence for the team through these three games. He's not a, you know, traditional, as we kind of alluded to with Jimmy Butler, this Permariner alpha dog lead scorer. But he's done quite well for himself over these last three games. He still does not shoot enough threes. He does those little where he kind of gets the mid-range and posts someone's up and fades away. And he's okay at that. But he has such a quick release that he should just be doubling the amount of threes he takes per game. And his three-point rate is, you know, much lower than it's been the last couple of years of his career. And the same can be said of Josh Richardson. I just wish these guys would take more threes, spread the floor a little bit more, and, you know, do the dumb math in your head that three points are worth more than two. But, you know, for all the complaints about his contract or what they gave up for him in a trade, and those two things shouldn't be entirely overlooked at all, he's done pretty well for himself. And, you know, they don't win against the Spurs without him. Yeah, and you know what I think has been really important, and you saw this in the Wizards game? I believe he was, I want to say like two for seven at halftime. And just looked kind of out of sorts. And those are games in the past where I think you might see him come out of halftime and just fade into the background and he ends up being like two for nine. But he, to his credit, especially after Ben Simmons dropped out of the ball game, was aggressive hunting for a shot. And yes, I, I agree with you, Seamus, that there should be more threes rather than those stupid fadeaway jumpers from the mid post but I think the important thing is he seems to recognize the offense has got to come from somewhere and it might as well be me and he's not letting himself get discouraged or deterred from attacking regardless of uh, the events that came before so I, I think that's an important step for him I think there have been too many nights where either he's cooking and that's obviously great but if he's not he allows himself to be phased out of the game to the extent and and they're not going to win that way so i i like what i've seen from him so far he's got to be better defensively too but i don't expect much from him on that end so as long as he keeps this up i think they'll be in good shape i think he's fine defensively he's not great but i think he's passable enough and has made some strides this year you know he's played better defensively this season i will say than i expected him to or i think he's played the best defense of his career yeah, I mostly agree with that. So, do you want to wrap it up with a the return of the Rudy Gobert Loser of the Week award? Yeah. Do you want to explain the situation because I don't want to get anything correct here because naturally. Okay, so <laughs> the Loser of the Week, first of all, is a man named Chris Palmer, who has been a writer for various outlets will say i know at one time he was with espn i believe he left there in maybe like 2013 and he's kind of notorious on basketball twitter for just having some really dumbass takes i think sixers fans will probably know him from he's the guy who when the the Sixers traded Evan Turner yeah. to Indiana he's the guy who said this the Pacers are basically unbeatable uh what else has he said he said I think last year or two years ago he said that he would take Lonzo Ball two years from now over LeBron James two years from now 
So, you know, we've all seen how that has turned out. He consistently makes top five lists that have six to seven items on them. So, you know, that's a... He had a first team, all like all bubble team that had like seven people on there yesterday. I was checking because of everything going on. First team, all NBA. We have eight choices for first team, all NBA now. So I, I say all this to set up how big of a dumbass this guy is. And I'm sure I, I, you would have to be living under a rock. And I don't think we have any podcast listeners who are living under rocks. That'd be wild. I'm sure you've all seen the explosion that took place in Lebanon. Obviously a terrible tragedy. I haven't read too much in the last 24 hours on it. I'm going to you know see the the fallout and all that at this point and this is not meant to make light of that situation at all obviously thoughts are with everybody that's been impacted uh, by that explosion so chris palmer logs on twitter i believe it was yesterday that the days all blend together at this point so who's really to say and the early reports were that it was a fireworks factory Seamus that blew up I think. yeah I, th- I believe so and I think some subsequent reports have said that there was a, a stockpile of maybe fertilizer or something that would have caused a bigger explosion but so this guy Chris Palmer posts the vi- reposts the video and says Lebanese media says it was a fireworks factory nope that's a mushroom cloud that's atomic and I just got to say, bro, if you don't know why mushroom clouds are caused, you probably shouldn't be accusing people of hiding the fact that a nuclear attack just happened. And I can pretty confidently say that mushroom clouds are not only caused by dropping atomic bombs. So I am not a stick to sports guy. Certainly Seamus is not a stick to sports guy either. But when you are this out of your depth talking about something, please, for the love of God, just shut the fuck up or at least read a book before you log on Twitter and talk about something. So Chris Palmer, congratulations on being, I think, the consensus new slant podcast loser of the week this week. Unfortunately. Yeah, there's not really a close second for that one. So, yeah. I, I would say I hated it had to be you, but I, I think he's a dumbass anyway. Yeah. So I don't really care that we had to anoint him one officially. I think that's about it for this week. Hopefully next week I do not lose my voice every third sentence and I'm a little more hydrated. Hopefully the Sixers are you know a little less sloppy than they were through the first three games. But until then, if you guys could subscribe five-star review the podcast if you haven't already and obviously stay safe stay masked up and we'll talk to you soon talk to you